Toto. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You're listening to Out of Odds, a podcast from Building 28 Church. Welcome back to Out of Oz, season three. Woo! <laughs> I'm your host, Peter Tragos. With me, as always, is Aaron Curran and our favorite guest, Adam Powers. And we are a Building 28 Church podcast. And on this podcast, we confront the fantasies and fallacies of modern day Christian culture with compassion, conviction, and courage. And many times we find ourselves talking about theological topics, which people have seemed to like when we dig in. And they seem to like even more when there's a little bit of disagreement, which we're going to have on today's show when we talk about double predestination, not single predestination, but double predestination. As many call Can it we go the seventh, seventh point of Calvin, Calvinism, <laughs> sixth point of Calvinism. Yeah. Um, so what are we talking about, Aaron? There was only five us? points in 1619, and there should only be five points now. Amen. So we have uh, last season, season two of Out of Oz, probably the two episodes that I personally got the most feedback on were the episode... Can Christians smoke weed, which I really enjoyed. I thought it was a fun episode and it's a legitimate question people were asking. Powers was not on that episode with us. But the other one that I got a lot of traction on was predestination. Is it biblical? And um, found a lot of those within our church and outside of our church and in Powers Church asking, hey, can we discuss more theologically grounded questions? We, we do address cultural issues that are facing us and practical Christian issues. But these uh, this is one of those questions that has come from those who have studied the doctrine of predestination, unconditional election. And, uh, and I think it is a pressing question that needs to be answered. And I think a lot of our worship and our comfort in this life is hinges upon how we answer this question, quite honestly. So while scripture is abundantly clear, even though there remain humanistic and traditional naysayers, sorry, that unconditional election is true, uncertainty still swirls for many around the matter of double predestination. I don't know why. Hey, I'm trying to set this up. This oh, is the intro powers. Jeez. Um, <laughs> does God actively ordain unrepentant sinners for damnation, or is he more indirect with reprobation? To state it more plainly, does the Lord predestine sinners for damnation in the same way that he predestines Christians for salvation? And to answer, help us answer that question, and most likely get it wrong today, my good buddy, Professor Adam Powers here on the podcast. <laughs> it's beating you up this season, man. It's going to be right. a fun That's ride. Right. So, it always happens. That's okay. So on today's episode, we're going to define what it is. We're going to talk about it. We're going to debate it. But at the Very end, helpful. I think we're going to talk about why it matters. And I think we got to remember, because sometimes uh, if yeah. we just sit here and talk about this, we could just go for a long time debating some of the nuance. But at the end, we need to talk about why it matters, right? Because I think it does matter. It's not just a heady conversation that we're having because we enjoy talking about it, which we do, but it also matters to the Christian, you know, to me, at least I think it's, it's really important. And I think the conversation starts with unconditional election, like Aaron said. So why don't we define again and explain unconditional election as quickly as we can? Okay. So a lot of this is, is systematic. So it ties in. So you really have to begin just very quickly with our condition. And our condition is that we are dead in trespasses and sins. We are naturally on our way toward damnation, destruction, condemnation. That is our natural bent away from God. We don't desire the things of the spirit of God. We might desire the good gifts of his peace and joy and whatever, but we don't desire him and his presence and his sovereign rule over us. And so what scripture also clearly teaches, not only that we're totally depraved in that sense, meaning that every facet of our being is saturated with sin, but that we're also, we're in need completely of God's intervening miraculous grace demonstrated to our lives through the death of his son for his people, through the regeneration of his spirit for his people, and through the election or selection or predestination, meaning before time began, God destined his people for salvation. And what he did is he selected out of the whole of humanity, those who would be his children. And he purpose to save them through the shedding of his um, son's blood, through his son's resurrection from the grave, through the impartation of that miraculous grace by his spirit. And that is what we mean by, as simply as I can put, that God selected individuals to be recipients of his sovereign grace. It's very clear. It might not seem fair to somebody. It might not seem right to another person, but everything God does is right and just and good. It's not conditioned upon anything we do. 
It's conditioned upon his glory and his pleasure and his love alone. So it's unconditional for us that he chooses us, that he elects his people. Anything you want to add? God, before the foundation of the world, chose all those who would believe in him apart from their own merit or foreseen faith by his grace for his glory. And only those individuals will receive salvation. Yeah. And I think the only nuance there that we would disagree with how other people might explain it is he saw ahead that we were going to choose him and then he chose us. We don't Yeah, we talked about that on the podcast, on the predestination podcast. Apart from foreseeing any faith. It's not cognitive. It needs to be there. It's not cognitive. It is causative, unconditional election. Causative. All right. So, which is why we'll use words like ordain versus for no or foresaw saw because even though they're using the Bible, the words are more akin to Mm. ordain or cause. Yeah. So, I think where we're going to have to have our split, right? So the question comes, we all agree as we sit here that God actively pursues us, chooses us, changes our heart, causes us to become a Christian, causes us to choose him. So we're all on the same page with that. And where we're going to talk about today, and that's single predestination, that's the beginning of predestination. But then the double side and the double question is, what about everyone that goes to hell? What about everyone that's damned? How does God work in their lives? Is he actively causing them to sin, causing them to go to hell? Is he passively just stepping back and letting them do their thing? How are we going to define that and explain that second part of predestination? But before we get there, before we get there, just a question to kind of set the scene, because a lot of it's going to, we're going to talk about God's character and whether he can or can't do certain things. Do you agree or disagree with this statement? Aaron, you first. We need a category in our minds that goes something like this. God can will that sin be without sinning. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Adam, I know you agree with that statement. Yeah, that was a quote from Jonathan Edwards. Okay. (laughs) So, I mean, God can will that sin be without sinning. Okay. So we're going to talk a lot about, I guess, what exactly does God ordaining or willing something mean? Because if he's willing sin and not sinning, what does that look like? So where do you think the discussion starts, Adam, for double predestination? Well, like Aaron said, it starts back in the garden with a retracing of who God is, holy, 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 who man is created good to be the lords of the earth underneath the true Lord. That's our original state. We fell from such an original condition into death in the fall of sin in Genesis 3. And so we are now by nature, every single human being that has ever been, that ever is, that ever will be, is conceived in this world under the wrath of God. Because we by nature hate God and all tracing back to that first sin. So therefore, if there's not predestination, no one would believe in Jesus. No one would accept or say yes to the gospel. But that automatically then entails the question, right? What does God do with those who don't believe. And I would submit to you that you can't have a doctrine of predestination without the flip side of the coin, which we call throughout church history, the doctrine of reprobation, Right. which you have the elect and the reprobate, those who believe, those who don't. That's true. Absolutely. I agree there. Yeah. And we all agree that no matter what anybody does, if you're chosen, you're going to heaven. And if you're not, you're going to hell. Yeah. Yeah. Even no matter the, what you do. Look, yes. even the Arminian or the Molinist who's watching this would at least, if they're Orthodox, say that God knows who's going to heaven, knows who's going to hell. The the person who ascribes biblically, I would argue, to the doctrine of unconditional election, believes in a form of double predestination because by choosing, like so you, let's say you put hypothetically, say you put ten orphans in front of me. And and I and I choose two of I have I've adopted two sons, Spurgeon and Augustine. I am for reasons all my own. For me, it would be that I I can't afford to adopt 10 children. Uh, you know, I don't have the bandwidth to, I don't think, care for 10 children, whatever. But the, the idea there is that I am passing over. At the very least, I am cognitively passing over the other eight. And so the idea of an omniscient God who is out of the whole of humanity, let's say that he 
for, for the sake of argument, selected 5% of all of humanity to, to be his children. He is necessarily not forgetting about, because he can't forget about the other 95%. He is at the very least passing over and allowing them to continue in their own way, which is reprobation. They are, they are not going to be gifted the spirit of God. They are going to end up condemned and going to hell. Some would say that he is active in causing that damnation, which is how they would define double predestination. Others would say he is passive in permitting or um, releasing them or allowing them. But everyone who ascribes to unconditional election believes in one or the other, really. Can I provide a different analogy? Yes, please do. Because the the reason I don't like that analogy (laughs) is you would adopt all 10, which would mean God would adopt all 10 because he could. He has the bandwidth. Doesn't. Whatever. But he could. You, could. You're saying you he could. could. You're yeah, saying exactly. you can't. Could. So that's exactly. that's why I don't love sure. that analogy. I, I like the one we've talked about a lot of times, and it's going to help with some of the questions that I have. Is that we're all running off a cliff, and God's picking people out and putting them in heaven, and everybody else is running off their cliff into damnation. But he that's could what pick all of them out. He could or, pick all of them out. Or all of humanity is running at God's throne with weapons in their hand, ready to dethrone him and enthrone themselves. It's, but that's more complicated. So No, it's not. <laughs> yes, and because, then God saves some of that group. It's very Tolkien-esque. But I'm all saying, the rest but still everybody's, hate him. Everybody's going to die, is the point. Yeah. So everybody's yeah, yeah. going towards hell. <laughs> yes. And there is no way that we could like turn around and run back to our house or anywhere else. Everywhere we're running is off a cliff into eternal damnation. And God picks some of us out of the crowd while we're all running the same way. None of us are doing anything different. He's picking runners, right? And he only picks some for his own reasons. So we all would also agree that each one of us on the planet are making a conscious decision to run off the cliff. That's what we want to do, right? Suppressing truth, yes. Right. That's what we all want to do. You gave the analogy on another episode of you put uh, meat and grass in front of a lion or something. Where's the lion going to go every time he's going to go get the meat? Yep. And that's us. So we can only do this. We are going to do this every time. The question is, I think there are three options potentially. Either God has done nothing and he's just picking his hands up and being passive and letting everybody run off the cliff that doesn't, and only deciding to put his hand down and be active in the one that he's saving, which would be passive double predestination, or active, which is defined as God is shoving everybody off the cliff, basically making them sin and saying, you're going to do this to make sure you deserve hell because everybody has to deserve hell because nobody that's going to go to hell is not going to deserve it. That's what the Bible says. Or I think there's this third nuanced kind of description as, and I want to hear from you guys, because this is where it comes into when this predestination happens with the fall and all that, is God winding us up and pointing us in a direction or creating us to run that way, knowing that we can't do anything else. And is that active or passive? Can we do a fourth option? Sure, <laughs> sure. You can do as many options as you want that that give the best yeah. excellent. Because I don't think you would say well, option one or two. I would say one has some truth to it. Okay. And I'd say two and three are a little too aggressive, but I would define two and three a little differently in saying that in God's action of election, he actively chooses his beloved church. In his action of reprobation, he actively not chooses. By choosing some, God is actively not choosing others. I have no problem with that. But the way that we have to talk about his action really matters. So in the same way that you said earlier, really matters, that phrase has to be there. And I think at some point in scripture, God's going to seem very active in his reprobating work. His damning work is not choosing work. Whereas in other passages, he's going to seem passive while he just takes his hand off and lets sin consume the sinner. Both of those are present in scripture. And so the question of double predestination is to what extent is this activity in the same way? What does that mean and what do we mean by it? So I just had a whole week of class on Calvin up at RTS Charlotte. And it's an interesting discussion because the whole idea, the label double predestination didn't come around until about a century after Calvin. And so it's a little bit of an a false question to say, was Calvin a did, did he believe, did he teach double predestination? Well, no, because that term wasn't around at the time. And so when you look at Calvin's Institutes, by the way, 
you can see sometimes where he describes God in both his electing and reprobating work as very active, very sovereign, very much the king who is loving and damning. But then other times where he's talking about Romans 1 and things like this, he speaks of God as if God is very active in his choosing of the elect and very passive. I hate that word. Maybe we can think of a better word here. It's kind of in the confessions his, word. In his reprobation of the wicked. We could use the confessional word. How yeah, about I hate the word passive too. That's that's my biggest beef with it. But I don't think any of us would say, and I mean, Adam's the only one that would potentially say, that he is pushing people off of the cliff mm -hmm. and forcing them to do things they don't want to do, basically. No. Forcing no. them to sin when they don't want to. So none of us would say that. So- Okay, just to be fair- None of us should just to be clear, say that. Some of the double predestinationalists that I have run into would would go that far. That's probably hyper-Calvinism. And, and I think it is. Yeah. And that's what Sproul would, would argue against yeah. is that, so I agree with you that there's active components to reprobation. Yeah. Um, the analogy I would use, and all analogies break down, I get right. this, is I've got kiddos. I am active in establishing right and wrong in my house. I am active in bringing about the consequence for their disobedience. I am passive in their actual disobedience. That's honestly how I would see it when it comes to reprobation. God is active in establishing this is what's right. This is what is wrong. He is active in casting sinners into the lake of fire and, and, and bringing about their condemnation. He is passive or, look, I, I think this is important. So French Confession of Faith, 1559, we're confessional people here. So That Calvin wrote, by the way. Yes. Yeah. Geneva. Produce. So um, it's in all of these are in the sections talking about the God's decree. Okay. Um, so it's talking about God elected without consideration of their works to display in them the riches of his mercy. That's talking about the elect. Now, leaving the rest in the same corruption and condemnation to show in them his justice. Leaving keyword. Leaving is the key word there. The Belgic Confession of Faith of 1561. Also, leaving is an action. We'd all agree, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. But it's a passing over. Okay. So it's a passive action. I would, I would argue it's passing, it's active in the sense that I am leaving them. It's not, I'm not forcing them right. towards something, okay? Um, the same Belgic confession, just, he is just in leaving others in the fall and perdition wherein they have involved themselves. So he leaves them there. Westminster Confession of Faith, 1646, it says this, as he pleases, extending his mercy, withholding his mercy as he pleases, for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by, that's the key phrase there to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin, for their sin as a result of their sin to the praise of his glorious grace. Hold on. We, yeah. To ordain them. Read that again. So it says to pass by them and to ordain them to dishonor. I have no problem saying that. I think that's what Romans 9 is teaching is that the reprobate are ordained for wrath. Yeah. They're destined, Peter yeah. would say, for wrath. And that, But isn't ordaining an active action of God? It is, but Aaron would describe the activity differently. I would describe it as an indirect causation. And I think that's where I would start. Adam started with the fall, which obviously that's a great place to start. I would start with the confessional language of within the plan of God, he ordains all things that come to pass, either actively or directly or indirectly. All things. Very Thomas Aquinas of you. Hey, I like Thomas Aquinas. And then in the <laughs> London Baptist Confession, which is the best confession, um, it says, um, by the decree of God for the manifestation of the story, some men and angels are predestined or foreordained. We don't have time to talk about angels today. Um, or nope. foreordained for eternal life through Jesus Christ, the praise of his glorious grace. Others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious grace. And I think that's where I come down on this. I'm saying that that is how I see God. Um, leaving us to our own devices. That does not mean that he doesn't intervene to harden hearts at times, like we did with Pharaoh, as he does with um, vessels prepared for destruction. But I see it as inside of time, because of the fall, as a result of the fall and our disobedience, that we are destined for wrath. Outside of time, as a result of God's glorious grace, we are predestined as saints for glory. So how do you answer the question or work the nuance that God created us this way or where the Bible even says he creates, you know, vessels of wrath or wicked for the day of trouble or Jacob and Esau, obviously. Sure. So how do you, like, if he's creating us to only be able to do one thing and then saving us from it or not, how does that work into the passivity of So I believe that God reprobation? created us good, as Adam said 
create humanity good, meaning not us now, but humanity. Very good. Um, very good. He looked upon it and said, this is good. Like these, these, this is good. My creation is good. And that we, while under God's sovereign rule and reign, we volitionally chose to rebel against him. And we continue to do that now. Adam and Eve brought the curse of sin upon the world. That destruction and damnation and condemnation is a, in one sense, I believe, is a grief to the heart of God. And in another sense, and when we say grief, that's taking consideration, not grieving as we grieve. But in another sense, he is fully justified and even pleased in the condemnation of sinners because his justice is satisfied. Um, but that we are going to hell of our own volition and our own culpability. That's what I believe. I don't think we need any help getting there. Um, I think he is casting people into hell because of our choices, our rejection of Christ, our sin, both inherent and volitional. And um, I think Romans 1, I, I mentioned this before the podcast. I think when God says that those who stand before him um, legitimately condemned and are without excuse, I don't, I don't think he's mincing words there or causing confusion. I think a very legitimate excuse would be, you actively caused me to go to hell. Like that's a legitimate excuse, but I don't think he's doing that. I think that those who go to hell are going to hell because their whole life is wrapped up in the rejection of God's true grace. Or that they would even say such a thing as evidence of their own lack of regenerated heart. Yes. So two things here. We all want to affirm, and I wholeheartedly agree with you. No one wants to say at the end that anyone is in hell because... God just shoved them there. No one wants to say that. At the end, we all affirm the only people that are in glory are in glory because of grace. And the only people that are in hell are in hell because of their sin. Responsibility is a real thing, right? We're all responsible for sin. But we also have to embrace the language. At what point in time did God predestine the elect and predestine the reprobate before time began. See, I don't believe that God predestined the reprobate. It's the same action, but though. it uh, but other, the Bible other than in about, passing over. But no, they're designated for that. Designated before the fall. Appointed. These are these are very within time phrases to me. I am destined because of my sin for hell. I am predestined for salvation before the foundation of the world. So when God talks about vessels designated for wrath, do you think He's including you? No. 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 What about no, no, what no, about no, no. designated for condemnation? Is that you? No. No. So no. But I think I think all all, all of humanity, apart from the predestinating work of grace, is destined for wrath. So when God creates somebody, He creates them fully cognitive of the reality that they have been predestined for glory, or if they are not, they are destined for wrath by their own nature, volition, and rejection of Christ. Can I do a historical sure. track? I like, I like historical. Really quick. Go for it. Okay. So before the Renaissance, right? The Renaissance is, you know, before it, it was the pre-modern time where God is the measure of all things. God has all the answers. If you have a problem in life, you go to the priests, you go to the one who has the, the monks, the popes, etc. Even in the early part of the Reformation, you go to the pastor, these things, you go to God for answers. Well, Renaissance happens, Reformation happens all over the world. All of a sudden, for the first time in history, man is seen man as the measure of sure, all things. Definitely. Yeah. Modernism looks like that. Then postmodernism even looks like that in a more emphatic degree, we could say. I would say in a more individualized degree. Yeah, totally. Uh, from it's the just, Renaissance, there was still a communal aspect right. to our rejection. It's just totally humanism. the individual. Now it's all about me, like what yeah. I want to be right. And it doesn't matter what anybody else says. It's what I say, right? Things like this, right? So... It is interesting to notice, I think in history, that there's a big shift with the doctrine of double predestination. Though the label wasn't there, there's a shift. A recent in, shift because it wasn't even around to the 17th century. Well, but, right. Yeah, go ahead. But when talking about the reprobate, which has been around sure, since sure, sure. the Bible was written, yeah. before the Renaissance and the dawn of modern times, modernity, if you will, um, anyone usually I'll say 99% of the theologians talking about the reprobate would talk about God as very active in the act of reprobation. There's a shift that happened in the Renaissance. And I'm not saying it's a bad shift. I'm saying we, we have to wonder, is this shift bad or is it a good one? When the Renaissance happened, Reformation happened, man becomes a measure of all things. Postmodernism, I am the measure of all things. 
theologians start talking different. And some of the reformers even talk about this too in the subsequent generations after Luther. No longer is God as active as he once was in reprobation, but now man seems to be the main actor in reprobation because it's his own fault, his own sin that he's there. And all of a sudden, God's no longer the ordainer, but just the allower of those to go into hell. I think there's something to be warned in that while we want to affirm everything you said. So Peter, I think what's going on, we affirm what Aaron's saying. We would just go further and speak about God's more God's more active, we think, than Aaron. I think it's almost thinks. disingenuous to, to for somebody that's not a Christian and just wants to talk about it. I think it just makes it seem like, well, if he's in control of everything and he created us and he could save us, to say that he's just totally passive and it's all our fault, I think is harder to understand versus the better explanation to me of what gives me peace around the whole situation is human responsibility and culpability outside of God's ordained plan. Like God ordained what is to come and his will will happen. And we are predestined to heaven or hell, every single one of us, before we're born, no matter what we do. But we still do everything to deserve hell on earth. And that's why that question in the very beginning, that there's a category in our mind that God can will that sin be like Christ's crucifixion. Like is the fall. The best one. Yeah. Because that's why we all get to go to heaven. That's sin. He willed that and worked that to happen. Like he was active in that, you would say, right? Uh, he was not uh, directly causative in the sin of the people who nailed Christ to the cross. Do you think no. he was active in Jesus ending up coming, being born, and ending up dying on the cross for our sins? Yes. Which is a but sin. But not active in any of the sin related to it. But the, it's because it's humanistic sin, not sin for God. Though But God, but God chapter... can't sin... Even Acts. even in, in his he terms, he can't that sin he's or he won't sin. What? Because that's oh, I think oh, a, oh. both. Acts chapter two, twenty seven and twenty eight, or twenty three and twenty four. Peter's preaching at Pentecost. You lawless men, heartless lawless men, you crucified Jesus, but you only did what God predestined you to do long ago. And so, I, I'd say yes that God was the one behind not only sending causing Jesus. The, directly causing the sin. He's the cause of all things. And yet we cannot directly, lay. Directly the cause of all things? I mean, there's secondary causation. There's indirect causation. But insofar as we detract from this, I think we do well, resemble we, the shift in history. Can we all agree that it would not have happened without God? Amen. So therefore he Amen. has to be well, a cause. Was. Sin, so he's got to be at least a sin, proximate cause of everything. Sin would not exist without God because he's the one who established right, what is right. I agree with you. But but Adam is the culpable party for introducing sin but to the world. I agree. Apart from culpability or guilt, God is the one who brought about the fall. And God does that without any brought blame, about any say, guilt, I would say any indirectly, wrongdoing. And I think, I'm, I think I'm in line with the confessions. When I say indirectly brought about, he, like, he didn't... He wasn't forcing Adam's hand to no, sin against I'm, I'm, himself. No, I'm not saying he's forcing. I'm yeah. saying he set everything in motion so that this was the only possibility that yes, would ever exist. I, I would agree with that. I think that's very active. Yes. Uh, I agree that there's an activity to it. Yeah. Um, I, I, think that, I think that we are... I, I believe we're kind of sidetracking to that, but off the main subject of huh. what happens to the reprobate. Like, where, I mean, like, because now we're talking about all good reformed people are going to believe that God ordained all things that come to pass. Yeah. The nuance you're going to come into, as you how, said from the how outset, does that how directly, yeah. indirectly does that go about? R.C. Sproul said in response to this, and he's not the measure of all things, but he said the distortion of positive, positive predestination, what that active, active, he actively causes the saved to be saved. He actively causes the damned to be damned clearly makes God the author of sin who punishes a person for doing what God monergistically without the help of any other causes and irresistibly coerces man to do. He goes on to say, such a view is indeed a monstrous assault on the integrity of God. This is not the reformed view of predestination, but a gross and inexcusable caricature of the doctrine. I would wholeheartedly agree with him. I would agree with Spurgeon, who has a very similar quote to that. I cannot see from 
and this is not a humanistic approach. So a lot of times people will say, uh, I can't never embrace a God like that. They're saying that outside of regeneration, outside of a biblical yeah, worldview. Right, right. I, I believe I'm inside of regeneration and inside a biblical worldview when I say, yeah. I cannot see the God of scripture being the monster that clearly Sproul condemns and, and, and Spurgeon condemns that is actively causing the reprobation that exists in the heart of humanity. I, and I don't see any biblical evidence for that either. Let me, let me ask you this, Adam, because I'm unsure exactly yeah. where you are on all this. Do you think that God actively places the human nature, the sin nature in humanity, or that is just the result of natural consequence now as a result of the fall? He imprints okay. upon them the Imago Dei. Okay, right? so this He imprints the Imago Dei. He, he yeah. breathes into Amen. them the breath of life. Um, I was shapen. Yeah. Um, this is basically the question. Yes. Yeah. So does, does yeah. he actually infuse into them the sin nature? Or, or are they just born with it as natural consequence of being born in Adam's seed? So my answer to the question is, why is it an either or? Scripture says yes. Okay. I think. I, I would say that it does. And I, I think it's just a natural cause. Right. I don't think that God himself is infusing us with sin nature. I think that he is breathing into us the breath of life and creating us actively in his image and likeness. And that the sin nature yeah. is naturally passed yeah. from the seed of a man to the his progeny to, all his yes, progeny does, exactly. does does our sin nature bring glory to god yes in the end it will when he makes much or glorifies his wrath and justice finally poured out on we the have wicked. to be careful with it because so, those listening I, I don't know who all listens to the podcast or watches the podcast but that does not mean that god is actively glorified in your so, transgression right now no so correct. so that i want to no. make that clear correct ultimately he'll be glorified in all things his justice will be accomplished. Which is why, like the same thing with the Joseph story, it's like sin nature is meant for bad. Can you meant God evil, mean it God for glory? meant it for good. For his glory. That's all of history. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. That's kind of the hard wrestling thing where I think that I actually love, I didn't, I was very interested in how, how Adam was going to answer that because I don't know what my answer is to that. But I think the answer just being yes, meaning sin nature's there. We know the it's there. The guilt of man and the sovereignty of um, And that's kind of how you know, we look at this, I, what I really liked, Aaron, was your question in the outline. Is reprobation done in exactly the same way as salvation? I would say no. Yeah, I would say absolutely not. Right. Even though I would say I think there is, I would define some of God's actions as active. Okay, so Romans 9, we both have it. I have it on my computer here. Ah, I'm there too. He has it in his actual Biblios. <laughs> um, read us your verse for active act of predestination. You kind of set, set me up there to lose. So... <laughs> Let me restate why I want to say Romans 9 before you can make I read your own this, point. this verse. I'll make my own point, not the point you want me to make here, Goober. <laughs> All right. So if we're talking Romans 1, let's say 18 to 32, where it says God passed them over. God gave them, gave up, them up, gave God. them up, gave them up. Three times God gave them up to their sin. God is passive in the reprobation of the wicked. If we're talking Romans 9, I think we see the other side of the coin. I think, well, with the, with the other side of the same coin right there, I think we see some of God's activity. Romans 9, 22 uh, and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So that's the reprobate. That he prepared for destruction or that were prepared? That it just says prepared. Okay. Right. I, I, I see what to, you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared he, oh, yeah. beforehand for glory. So I'll say there is the pronoun he in the latter, not the former. That doesn't 100%. So can I make one more point? No, hold on. Okay. Hold on. This says... That God desires to show his wrath. He desires to make known his power. And the way he's going to do that in the end is by executing justice on the wicked, the wicked that he made for the day of judgment so that he can show mercy to the elect. So he hated Esau because of Esau's sin. And he loved Jacob because of his grace. Yeah. So that, and to me, that would be active and passive. And the thing that's very interesting to me is in the Greek, the voice of the Greek, which I know as a doctor, uh. you can look up the voice in the first prepared there, which is absent of the pronoun he, 
is passive voice in the Greek. And in the second prepared, it is active voice. Right. And and every good commentary on Romans worth its salt will draw your attention to the difference in these two. But 99% of these commentaries, Doug Moose being, I think, the best in the New International series, great. will say this is something to notice, though it might not carry the weight that a lot of people give to it. If it carries any weight at all, <laughs> if it carries any weight at all, I think there's a very good argument that that the the vessels of wrath just just so the so anybody who's still tracking with us can follow. Oh, they're all what, still here. What, what, I, what I'm trying with the here. argument that I'm trying to make is <laughs> that we get to hell of our own choices. Though God ordains that and casts the reprobate into hell, yeah. we get there yeah. and dive off the edge of the cliff willfully. Yeah. I love Tim Keller's analogy is. For the reprobate, all of life is a downward trajectory and hell is the final culmination of that. Like mm-hmm. all of our life, we have said, I don't want God. I yeah. don't want God. And now we have an eternity oh, without God. Like mm-hmm. nobody goes to hell kicking and screaming. Like we all go there willingly. We don't go to heaven kicking and screaming. We no. go there because we have been regenerated, awakened, heart of flesh put in and wooed by the spirit of God to Jesus. Appreciate so those who are in heaven, as Spurgeon would always say, are there by his grace alone. Those who are in hell are there by their own choice by their own volition, though that does not excuse the fact that God ordained that he, that we, he, the vessels of wrath are prepared. Like, so when God creates, if you're omniscient, you fully know, um, and are therefore ordaining that if I'm creating somebody who I did not predestine for glory, I am necessarily destining them for wrath. Like, I don't see how you could even argue that point, but that does not mean that he's active, active in saying, Okay, I'm I'm creating these people to cause these people to go to hell and to cause these people to go to heaven. I I disagree with that assessment, and I'm not saying that you agree with it. I'm just saying I think that Romans nine is the typical text that people go to, and I think there's good internal evidence here that points to that the Lord passes over, consistent with the confessional language, passes over um, those who are not elect without any ignorance on His part. He still sees them very actively passing over them or leaving them, I think was the the way the London Baptist Confession put it, leaving them to their own devices, which is very Romans 1. I also think that, um, and I've used the analogy before, and you, you might not like it, but it's been helpful for some people, um, but that when it, when it says that he hardened Pharaoh's heart or that he hardens hearts, or even in Romans chapter 1, even though it, it has passive language there, it also talks about there's some active language of hardening the heart, I believe, there in Romans chapter one. Anyway, the whole point there is I, I believe that that hardening of the heart is not an active reaching in and making the heart more sinful, because that's direct causation, but I think it's a revealing of the person of Christ. And the analogy I've used is, is Jeffrey Singer, who's our media director here, hates mayonnaise. Everybody knows that. I think you know that. And so if you lift up so a good. he's a weirdo. If I were to if I were to lift up a vat of glossy mayonnaise to his face, he would hate it even more, you could say. He'd be even more repulsed in that moment. He would want to throw up in that moment. Okay. Okay. Um, I think the natural man hates the glory of Christ, hates the person of Christ. And the way I would argue that God hardens hearts without actively reaching in to cause rebellion and transgression is by revealing more of himself. I think he revealed more of himself to Pharaoh in his glory, which made the man who already hates God even more repulsed by the glory of God. And I think that's what's going on even in Romans chapter nine. And so anyway, that's that's how I Why see it. Why is that different, a different definition to you than if somebody just said God reached in and hardened Pharaoh's heart? Because I've always contended that that we we go to hell because we want to, and that the the natural man, it's not that they and powers might disagree because there is division in reformed theology on this, but the natural man, it's not that they're they can't choose God. And therefore, they won't choose God. It's that they will never choose God, and therefore, they can't choose God. So our incapacity is linked to our volition. And so because I will never choose God, because I naturally hate him, it's on me now. Could I choose God hypothetically, practically, truly? Sure. But I will never, ever, ever do that because I hate God. And so when God reveals more of himself, the same son, as the Puritans say, that, that hardens the hardens clay, melts wax. Like the the presence and the glory of God either softens the heart. To, to respond to him, or it hardens the heart that already hates God. That's how I see, I understand there might be convolution in this, but that's how I see the active grace of God in the heart of the regenerate, the elect, and the passive passing over whatever whatever word you want to use in those who are on their way to destruction who get what they want. So you could use, and people have the exact same analogy 
with the same sun that softens the clay, hardens it, right? That's, sure. that's what yeah. you said. To say what I'm saying, say what Peter's saying. And it's just the degree of activity that's in view here. And so part of this, the frustrating element, is that I think we've said where we're at. Just to interject, the question Peter asked. Yeah. He said no. Wait, what? Well, what the was qu- the question, the question was, is reprobation done exactly the same way as salvation? I want to say yes and no. Hmm. Romans 9, yes. Romans 1, no. Yeah. I, think, I would say I think no. Romans yeah. 1 and, I think Romans 1 and 9 say no. Yeah, yeah, I would say no to that yeah. for, I think a lot of reasons just in what makes salvation unique and how God works in us. Well, right. But when, just, when you trace all the causes, secondary causes, all the way back, there's always a first cause to all things. And that's God. Ephesians 1.11, all things work according to the counsel of his will, which means nothing yeah. works apart from his I agree with that. But when we will. say the same or exactly the same, those all those secondary and indirect causes make it vastly different is what I would argue. The beauty of unconditional election leading to salvation and glory is, I would argue, the primary work of God in the world for his glory. Like the primary reason why anything exists is to glorify him through the redemption of his people. It's not through the reprobation of the unsaved. That is, if you could say so, that's secondary to that. I, I would answer that differently and just say the goal and end of God is the glory of God and end it there. I think the natural question comes, how? How does he glorify How does he God? most glorify himself in this world? And I would say it's through the cross work of Christ and the redemption of his people. That's how he most glorifies himself. That's how he rallies the nations to the cause of Revelation chapter five to worship him. And so is he glorified through reprobation and damnation? Absolutely. Yeah. But I don't think that's yeah. the primary means whereby I don't think the I don't think the the meta narrative of scripture, the the what is it, scarlet cord of scripture, is reprobation. I think it's redemption. And so I think that is the primary means whereby God glorifies himself. Yeah, I mean, I just I just wonder if we're bringing nuance to scripture that's not there because we want, I'm not saying, well, here, here, I'll just say it. Are you saying that because you want it to be there in scripture? Or is it enough to say that the end of God is just the glory of God? I think that there is sufficient cause to worship God to truly worship him through our lives and through our songs and through our confession by him just being glorious and omnipotent and transcendent. Like, that's great. But I think he rallies our hearts to worship him most through the reality that he is not only those things, but he is also gloriously gracious and merciful. And I don't think that the doctrine of active, active predestination rallies worship in the hearts of his people necessarily. I think for some that somehow get there, it could. But I think that the the thrust of scripture is to point out that naturally left to ourselves, we are prepared. We're, we're destined for wrath. Like we're going, that's where we want to go. That's where we're going. There's nothing to be done. We're not going to change our mind. But it's directing us more so primarily to the reality that we are that we are to worship because we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, actively redeemed. He didn't just make a possibility. As we're, I want to talk about um, limited atonement on an episode this season, yes. like doing an episode of limited atonement. There's no possibility. Uh, yeah. The, 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 the this, this idea, this very modern idea of just this possibility, kind of ambiguous possibility out there. No, he actively purchased, redeemed his people. All that he died for will necessarily be saved. Like, I just think that there's a, there's a worship in that, the activity of God to oh, come yeah. for us. Yeah, and I don't think it's that same activity when it comes to reprobation. So the main issue, one of the similarities I would say with salvation and reprobation and one of the reasons why I disagree with the term passive is I think God, and I just, it's impossible for us not to think about it in our own mind, but I think he makes a decision for his glory for every single person. So that's a similarity that I see that I think a lot of people won't like, but I still think there are a million ways to get there where God is still just and not sinning. But I think every person, he makes a decision. So we can know it's like, okay, I'm just going to sit here and not do anything. And Deshaun can do whatever he wants over there on the couch. Or I can throw something at him and then just sit here and not do anything. See what happens and see what he does. And he can do whatever he wants to do. It's like you you actively make decisions. And I think God makes a decision for every single person. And I think the goal of that decision is to bring him most glory. Would you agree with I that? I agree with that. Okay. I agree with everything God does. Every, we all agree with that. That's the reformed, confessional, biblical view 
everything God does is to bring him glory. There is a primary way that amongst humanity and his people that God brings himself glory, and it's through salvation. Sure. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I don't think reprobation is the theme of scripture. I think it's very clear. Oh, I would never deny that. that. No. Yeah. I'm no, I know you're not. But yeah, I'm just saying, no. I think that's where never, some who are very never. active, active predestination can, can get with this. So, unless Powers has any more arguments you'd like to make. So, what can people learn from this? How is this comforting? Because I think that's what it, maybe it doesn't sound like it based on our conversation, but to me, it's a comfort. <laughs> um, predestination just, in its entirety and reform theology is, is comforting. So why is double predestination more comforting than single predestination, which we didn't really talk about, but the only way single predestination makes any sense is everybody goes to heaven or everybody goes to hell or God just makes, lets everybody make their own decisions and he just stays out of it completely. So I think the confessions make clear and so does scripture that the, the glory in this, the comfort for the Christian is, um, well, the comfort for the Christian Heidelberg catechism is I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. Um, and so once again, that redemptive arc, I think the comfort in this, even for a non-believer is God's not forcing you to hell. He is patient and he is kind and he is gracious. And if you choose a life apart from Christ and continue to reject him, he will justly damn you to hell by your own choices, your own volition. Like he will justly do that. Um, but if you will graciously turn to Christ, and, and repent of sin, he will embrace you into his family. And we have this, like, I don't know if we mentioned on the predestination podcast, but Spurgeon had this great way of saying, like, you come to a, a house that with a door and over top of it says, whosoever will may enter. On may come. Says, and on the back side, it says chosen before you. the foundation yeah. of the world. And That's so good. as we're That's entering good. into the fold, like I would say to anybody watching, listening, hey, trust in Christ, come to Christ. And then as you come to Christ, like be assured that you're only coming. The comfort, the beauty there is you're only coming because he's willing you to come. Like he is reaching down to soften your heart, to replace it with a heart of flesh, to, to awaken you, all these all these terms and, and illustrations, metaphors are used in scripture. But basically it means that he's, he's romancing, the spirit of God is romancing your heart to the person of Christ, Whoa. making much of the person of Christ. Hey, you can say whatever you want. Very, very Hosea. Yeah, That's yes. Good. Like like causing yeah. you to love Jesus, wooing you <laughs> to love Jesus um, for the good of your soul now and eternal destiny. And so that is to me like immensely beautiful and comforting. I would say worship. And from my perspective, I'd say worship. And tell me if you think this is the case, I'll say something and you might say, well, you just said everything I just said. I don't think I am, but you may hear it that way, which is how nuanced this is. Worship is why all this matters because at the end, as we're there before the lamb, in the end, with all the elect, with all those covered in the blood, bought by the Father through the death of the Son, filled with the Spirit, as we're there, we will watch the Lord pour out his judgment on the wicked. And because we will witness this and we will see it, whether it's people we don't know or people we have very well known, family members, friends, because we have watched that, after that's done, we will praise God for the wrath of the lamb. We will turn to God and praise God for the blood of the lamb that we are covered in all the more because of how much of a contrast it is in comparison to the judgment of the wicked. I love that in parts, but, but I don't see it in Revelation 5. I do believe that we will worship God because he's a just God. Glorious God. But what I see in Revelation 5 is they sing this new song, worthy are you to take stroll, worthy to open seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, no, no, part, no part of reprobation there, no part of damnation, condemnation there. We will be so, I think, overwhelmed with the reality of our ransom by the blood of Christ and, and those of his people. I, From what I can see from the text, we will be almost oblivious to the reality that that there is... I'm not going to say oblivious to it. Sounds like another podcast. To, to reprobation. I, I think that the fixation will be the redemption of Christ. I think that's what Reve oh, Revelation I, 5. I think that's the fixation I don't know, and I don't even well. think that needs to be juxtaposed against wrath or condemnation. or you know. I just think that it's we will understand because we'll have the mind of Christ there 
in a sense, as Paul says in First Corinthians too, where we will understand, wow, this is what I've been saved from. Yeah. And not even in- So technically you just said the same thing no, no, that not, I said. Not, no, no. What I've been saved from, not in relation to who's being damned, but I've been saved from my sin, not even the condemnation and damnation, but we'll see. Because most of us, like when we come to Christ, like we come to Christ to be saved from hell, like a lot of times, especially as a child, like, oh, I don't want to go to hell. But what we don't understand is when we come to Christ, what's really happening is we're being saved from ourselves more than anything else. Like we're being saved from our sin and yes, from hell, from hell for sure. But it's not like coming to Christ is not like a get out, get out of hell free card, right, even though right. it is, it's it's coming to Christ because we get Jesus and we, and we get the presence of God. And I think that's what we'll be overwhelmed with. I believe based on Revelation 5, that's what we'll be overwhelmed with. And so I just think that not for you uh, and not for Peter, but for some of the active active, they would answer the question of reprobation, yes, Definitely. It's exactly yeah, the same. Right. Salvation, reprobation. Right. I think there is an unnecessary unnecessary and unhealthy fixation on wrath and damnation and condemnation um, that scripture doesn't lead us toward. I think we acknowledge that. We applaud God for his justice. But I think we as his people should be fixed on redemption, reconciliation, salvation. And I think that's what, you know, heaven, the, the life to come will be. And I think what's really comforting about all of this and as we discuss Reformed theology is while it may sound like an exclusive club of the chosen, and while it is by definition, it's not in humanistic terms because literally anybody, you make the choice to love Jesus and become a Christian, you're a Christian, you're in the group. So while like your analogy of walking in the door and making that decision to walk in the door, we all do that. We all can do that. There's nothing that, there's none of this, what we're discussing on this top shelf level has to do with humanistic decision-making to follow Jesus. Like you still go follow Jesus, run after it. If you're feeling that call yeah, and amen. if you love Jesus amen. and you don't worry about this. At this am point. I chosen? Right, am right. I regenerate? Don't, that's like, not something that, yeah, that, that comes into play, which I think is what's so comforting about it. And once you're in his hand, then you learn how you're never getting out. Yes. Like that's the comfort yeah. in it is not, well, you got to figure out if you're chosen. Well, you got to figure out if which part of this double predestination you're out. You don't because- just thinking about how God works and how it all works and what the Bible says and making these definitions and learning, we're never going anywhere because we've been destined for this. We've been ordained for this. We've been wooed. We've been taken where we want to be. And so nobody can come do it to us because the guy that grabbed us, nobody else can do anything that he can't do. And he's in control. He's all powerful. He's almighty. That's what's so comforting about it to me is that there's still anybody listening that wants to be a Christian can be a Christian. That can be true at the same time as this, which is what I like in discussing this so much is that that is still true. So anybody that acts like it's not is missing the point. Definitely. Well said. Well said. All right. Well, that's uh, I think that wraps it down for today. If you have questions, you can always leave them in the comments. You can always email Maggie at building28.com. With those questions, we'll discuss them on our Q&A, mid-season or end of season. This has been a fun first episode, at least fun, relatively speaking. <laughs> and uh, we look forward to uh, um, you guys tuning in. Definitely share the podcast with your friends. And uh, until next time. Thanks for listening to Out of Odds. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen. Out of Odds is produced by Building 28 Church and Podcast Royale. You can find out more about this show and Building 28 by visiting outofozpodcast.com. New episodes drop every Monday and you can get each one automatically by subscribing in your favorite podcast app.